engineers Simon Hawkes and Anthony Demanti, or Hawkes and AD to their mates, are on a journey down the river of water engineering. In this podcast series, Hawkes and AD share their inspiring conversations with a cross-section of people from the water industry and beyond. The conversations aim to motivate students and professionals alike to contribute to the growth of the engineering profession. So, without further ado, it's over to you, lads. Hello, listeners, and welcome back to another episode of The Good Drop, a water industry-flavoured podcast. My name's Simon Hawkes, and I'm here again with my co-host, AD, for hopefully what will be another interesting conversation with a civil engineering professional this time. AD, how are you going? Good, Simon. Thanks very much. Hello, everyone. Great to be with you. So, Simon, the day has finally arrived. Um, as you know, when we first founded The Good Drop with Hawks and AD, this guest was one that we were very keen to bring on and, and hear about his story. I suppose what makes it especially exciting for me personally is that I haven't connected with this person um, since graduation day from James Cook Uni in Townsville, and, and that was over 25 years ago. Yeah, I think that's um, it's a really great lead-in, you know, the uh, reconnecting with old alumni. I, it's something I haven't, you know, experienced a great deal personally. And so, yeah, definitely look, looking forward to today's conversation. Let me quickly introduce today's guest. That person is Todd Batley, who was AECOM's Chief Strategy Officer. And before that, he was AECOM's Chief Executive Officer for Australia and New Zealand. And look, I can't wait to hear about his career journey. Todd, really appreciate your time today. Welcome to the podcast. Well, thanks uh, thanks very much, Anthony, and thanks, Simon. It's great to be here. And after that introduction, I, I almost can't wait to hear myself speak. So let's start. Um, given up, we haven't spoken for quite some time. Can you tell us who is Todd Batley? But can you do it in a way without using the word chief? Uh, okay. How about I start with uh, Todd Batley's uh, 48 and almost 49, so almost ready to turn the half century, a civil engineer by training. But the things that do occupy my mind and my day and my passions are as I'm a, I'm a husband uh, to Melissa, a father to three three kids, occasional mountain biker. I'd like that to be a lot more, but it's hard to fit that in. And full-time taxi driver uh, for the Batley crew. So I'm probably like many of your listeners. I juggle a household with uh, two jobs, two dogs uh, and three kids. It's a, it's a busy life. And on top of all that, I, I fit in a bit of work for ACOM as well. So that's who Todd Batley is. Excellently done. <laughs> all right. How about uh, you tell us about your early years and, and upbringing and, um, and I suppose what made you choose engineering as a career? Yeah, Simon, that's a really good uh, question. It's actually one I reflect on a bit now, not so much for myself, but I've got teenage children and my eldest son who's 16, he's you know selected senior school subjects and he's thinking about what he might want to do at the end of school. And so you kind of can't help as you're trying to coach him a bit and reflect back what you see his skills are, my, my eldest son's skills. I was thinking about myself, what decisions did I make then? And was I was I particularly kind of engaged in that or did I just fall into it? And uh, to be honest, it's uh, what you realise is that it's a very young age to be making those decisions. Uh, Absolutely, and, uh, yeah. So that, that's the first thing I'd say. So I grew up in, in Townsville, which is uh, regional uh, North Queensland. I was uh, actually the first person from my family to go to university. My parents were very keen that I do that, but it wasn't an opportunity that, that they had. And so... I was really excited about uh, going off to, to James Cook University where I met Anthony and a bunch of other uh, colleagues. Uh, 
and graduated as a fairly small civil engineering class at the end of it, I'm pleased to say I still bump into it. Many of those people either on LinkedIn or sort of occasionally in a, at an industry function. And I think the, the thing about engineering that drew me in and still draws me in is that I think at its heart, engineering is creative problem solving. I used to say to Engineers Australia when, when I would have a bit to do with them, I, I think we overplay the whole maths and science thing. Sure, there's maths and there's science, but actually the really fun stuff is when you solve a problem that makes someone's life better. And whether that's a, you know, a, a water problem, a flooding problem, uh, a roads or transport problem or, or whatever it might be, I just think that's just the greatest buzz. So that's probably what got me in. I wasn't the world's best mathematician. I'm still not. Uh, I'm doing grade 11 maths for the second time for the record with Chester and I'm probably a bit better the second time. But uh, I think that solving problems uh, is what got me hooked. And in fact, and this would be on my encouragement to any of your listeners who are at university, perhaps, I found the workplace so much more interesting than uni itself because applying that became far more practical and, and high speed. It had a high cadence to the to the need, which for me has been a, a buzz uh, for for more than 25 years now. Fantastic words, I've got to say. So um, you mentioned uh, you're at AECOM. Can you tell us about your journey so far and, and if you can summarise your roles for us? Oh, sure, uh, Simon. Um, I've been very fortunate. Uh, I started off as ACOM actually as a at the end of my third year of uni when many of us were looking for part-time work. I was I used to work, uh, I had my own little mowing business, which was a terrible job in North Queensland <laughs> through the summer. Very hot, my word, I used to. It was a long time after I finished that before I could look at a lawnmower again. Um, but in the holidays, I used to try and get a job with a, with anybody really that would employ me over that sort of 12 weeks of summer and uh, to earn a few bucks to put them in the bank for the for what was the long winter of uh, of uni with not, not much money. And uh, I was very fortunate in getting a, a job with a company that became ACOM uh, at the time in, in Townsville. And so I, I worked for 12 weeks there at the end of my third year of uni. And um, at the end of that, I had a great time. I had a really fun time. I, it actually made my fourth year a, a real a dream in a way because I could see where this was all headed, which let's face it, most of our professors at uni probably weren't sure where it was headed, but um, that was really good to see to see it in practice. And uh, at the end of that, that last week of that 12 weeks of, of school holiday work or uni holiday work, the, um, the boss at the time sat me down and said, if you pass all your subjects in fourth year, we've got a job here for you when you finish. And I remember thinking, oh, how fantastic is that? And it might be a bit of a funny story, but that was the only job interview I ever had that moment. So um, <laughs> I uh, I started as a civil engineer uh, in, in the Townsville office. I ended up working all through kind of North Queensland on all sorts of different things. I ended up out uh, living in Mount Isa for a, a couple of years, uh, which uh, was no, nobody I know willingly goes to Mount Isa. But anyway, I ended up out there and then up through the Gulf country and into some Indigenous community work, uh, amongst other things. And then I... I, uh, I wanted to, to sort of shift from Mount Isa when my sort of two-year stint was up there and I, I asked if I could come to Brisbane, uh, which is uh, where I've called home ever since. So I drove into Brisbane uh, with a, a pretty old uh, Nissan Pulsar on Australia Day, the year 2000. I've made that home ever since. So uh, when I moved here, I had a, a range of different roles on projects to start with and then I got my first chance to run a uh, a team, a team of people actually kind of run a small team. And that that team was in the environment sector it wasn't they're were all scientists they weren't they weren't engineers i had no idea for the most part what they were uh, what they were doing technically uh, and so it was a really great actually lesson in leadership for me about letting people you know have some space because i couldn't 
I couldn't cramp their style. I didn't know what they were doing. I could certainly help them with some aspects of the business and, and projects, but uh, in terms of the technical work, they were they were certainly very self-sufficient. Uh, and from then it went on to a string of other other opportunities, uh, which I, I kind of sort of kept saying yes to, if you know, and including this most recent opportunity, which has been to work globally for the for the very first time for me as a um, as a part of uh, Acom's sort of global leadership team, and I, I report into our global CEO and uh, and am responsible for a few different elements of that. Uh, of our business, but digital, the digital investment and digital transformation being one of those things, which is really interesting and topical, I'm sure, for, for nearly every one of your listeners. Our strategic marketing, our client account program, and our general strategy. And so th those things are, are all fascinating in their own right, but it's a very different role to the one I had previously, which was a, a lot about people, a lot more about people and running the business, which uh, for us is really a lot about people. And so, yeah, it's been a, it's been a great Right, I don't think I've done anything particularly interesting along the way, uh, Simon. It's uh, it's just been um, saying yes to the opportunities as they were presented and, uh, and and doing my best. And sometimes that's been good enough. And there's been plenty of mistakes. I can tell you, we you don't have a long you don't have long enough uh, to to fill you in on all the all the speed bumps along the way. <laughs> Todd, you're a one club man, 25 years plus. That's that's <laughs> that's incredible. Could you just touch on what was the moment where you said, I'm I'm going to head to the city? Because, you know, you were born up in North Queensland. What lured you in? Her name's Melissa. <laughs> so I'd met I'd met Melissa and uh and that was uh that was the main the main thing. And that was uh turned out to be the greatest kind of gift in my life, uh, to have um to marry Melissa and then have build a life together. Uh so that that's had a lot to do with it. On a professional sense and even on a personal sense, I was I was ready to spread my wings, and it was either to go overseas or, or something else. And uh, I, I certainly didn't want to call Mount Isa home forever. And at the time, Brisbane was it was awash with work, and uh, and that that actually remained the case for many years there. I and just didn't. I'm sure many of your listeners and and even yourselves probably enjoyed just record infrastructure spending. We were the envy of the. Uh, the envy of Australia, certainly, and, and in, in fact, many in many parts of the world. So it was a wonderful time to, to come to Brisbane, and it's been a great place to, to live and now raise a family. Good on you, Todd. I um, can't help but smile. Like when you came to Brisbane for love, it's just, I get that. <laughs> I totally get that. Anyway, <laughs> your journey at ACOM has seen you become the Chief Executive Officer for Australia and New Zealand. You're only 45. You're quite young. Can you tell us Firstly, how you felt when you achieved this position, and I know you're not operating in that role at the moment, but can you tell us some of your achievements? Uh, okay, yeah, well, it's an interesting, an interesting story because I, I was, uh, I was replacing my uh, friend and colleague who I still work with very closely, Lara Poloni, who was the CEO uh, prior to me, and I had a great deal of respect for Lara and a lot of time with her and I really enjoyed working for her and I used to often look at her and think how does she do all this this is just remarkable and I had absolutely zero interest in replacing her but the company had seen Acom had seen what Lara had done in Australia uh, she'd done a wonderful job in, uh, in in really a turnaround job of coming in and and turning the business around and sort of reshaping us and refocusing us as a company uh, really post the the downturn in mining, I think most of the industry grappled with, but Acom grappled with that uh, as much as anybody. And Lara did a wonderful job in, in turning us around. And then, of course, the company saw that and gave her a promotion uh, and she moved to London. 
I can just recall getting this phone call completely out of the blue saying, um, what do you reckon here? Up to take over. And I thought, take over what? What are you? T- <laughs> what are you? And, I, and anyway, it was a, I actually had to go and think about it to think whether I could do the job, whether I could balance my um, family stuff and, and, and what I thought that role would do. And so I actually felt pretty daunted, to be honest. I didn't feel like I'd made it. I felt a bit like an imposter. I thought, oh, wow, I'm taking over from our best loved ever CEO in Australia and New Zealand. I don't know how you go up from there. And so there were probably two things I, I reckon that we did as a team, and it wasn't me, but it was we. We we built on the success of that Lara had set the foundation for. So that was the, the first thing. And I think that's important in leadership. You've got to recognise that even as bad as anything is or as good as it is, there'll be some things that have got to be changed, but actually there's lots of really good stuff. And so building on that momentum is really key. So that was the first thing we, we did. So that was, I, I consider that number one achievement. It wasn't even mine, it was Lara's, but it was actually to not stop that. And the second thing we're able to do, and I think this was, uh, again, uh, a testament to the team that I worked with and the team that's still there, is be incredibly focused on what we wanted to achieve in terms of the strategy for the business, which meant saying no far more than we said yes. But as a result of that, I I guess we looked back at how we sort of sailed through the the start of the COVID period and the like, and we were accelerating then uh, as a business in terms of market share and the things that that we were measuring as important client service. And uh, I just felt like we were really just getting started and then this new opportunity came along. So there was a little bit of me, just a little bit, that wanted to hang around for a couple more years because I reckon it was going to get really interesting. Uh, But anyway, uh, we didn't get to, uh, I didn't get to do that, but the the team has carried on some of that good work and and made other changes as well. So I don't know if there's any specific uh, thing I I could say, uh, uh, Anthony and Simon, about uh, achievements, but um, I think when I look back on that time, I think it was uh, setting a strategy that we believed in that has then proven to be fairly robust. And of course, we didn't do that with COVID in mind. That was not in our plans. It's certainly, I think, proved to be very, very helpful. Yeah, talking to you today, Todd, uh, Anthony and I, we've got some pillars, you might say, for the podcast in terms of what are the kind of the the big picture ideas that we're, we're interested to talk to people about. And leadership is definitely one of those. It's always about the team, isn't it? The success in such large organisations in which we work, you know, you can't do these kind of things and and achieve such success without, you know, strong team. And and Simon, I I think uh, just on a on a personal note, the the leader does play a role, there's no doubt, in terms of setting a tone. But actually, the leader is just one part of a team, and so that in fact, without a team, you don't need a leader. Uh, there's no leader on their own. There's none. And I think the really good ones that I've worked with and worked for have made it have found a way to make all the big decisions a joint one and for us to all feel like a bit of reflected uh, sort of glory in the good stuff and they've often taken the heat for the bad stuff even even if they didn't have anything to do with it i've certainly enjoyed that about the leaders i've worked with and for and even and and in troy rudd my, my current boss so i see i see that as well i think those things are universal across cultures as well from what i've seen i think it it just makes sense to to us to to want to work together to want to collaborate to want to learn from each other and to kind of want to do it in a safe way that we feel like we can be a bit vulnerable and expose what we maybe don't know so we can learn from others. You've touched on some of your responsibilities now in your current role, um, particularly uh, digital transformation, digital tools. Can you elaborate a little bit and maybe, you know, not so much specifically uh, in, in an ACOM sense, but, but more broadly, you know, in terms of that whole digital transformation? So, so, so I'm an Anthony, I think it's a, 
it's a fabulous time to be in the industry and it's actually a responsibility on people like us on the call here who have been around for a while to make sure we make this transition a good one for people and my motivation for being involved in 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 our digital uh, work and the digital work of the industry isn't because I'm a digital person per se. I'm not. I'm a, I'm a civil engineer and my background in digital is not not very deep. But it's because I can see that the world will be more digital in five years than it was five years ago. It's it's a one way street in my view. And so we can either embrace that and as a result, deliver better projects for our clients and our communities, or we can sort of rail against it. And it just makes sense to me that if we embrace digital technology in all of its forms and find a way to make, you know, the clients and our projects the hero of that particular change, we will deliver better. I'll just give an example. It's got nothing to do with, with engineering, but it's one from our personal life. We've got a, uh, Melissa and I have a young son called Max. He's uh, uh, nearly nine years old, uh, the youngest of our, our kids. And he's got a, a little eye problem, which is a bit, unique and in, in that if the eye problem with his with one of his eyes was in an adult it would be fixed with day surgery in and out in a day go home i think a week later you'd pull the patch off and that'd be the end of it really simple but he was one of the youngest people to ever them ever to observe this problem in a kid so it's typically something they observe in adults probably over 50 and here he is he was about four when this was you know and so so the the ophthalmologist, uh, who's a terrific guy, uh, the first thing he did was offer a second opinion. And the second thing he did was reach out to his network and collect all the data all over the world. Where has this happened before? How old? What was the outcome, et cetera? Now, that's all, of course, not personalized data. I have no idea who those patients were, but I had suddenly had all this data. Fantastic decision making tool as a parent sitting there. Mm. And and fantastic for him because it wasn't just his experience. We were now drawing on this particular, you know, the experience of this particular problem all over the world. And I think about that all the time because there's many times when we're designing things or, you know, we're trying to solve that problem that we started off talking about. How much more powerful, how much quicker, how much cheaper, how much more effective would it be if we could draw on the knowledge of the world a lot more quickly? And, uh, and we don't do that. So our industry has is, is been very committed to two dimensions uh, and PDFs and drawings and those things, and that's great. But we need to embrace three dimensions and we need to embrace data. And not in the way that social media embraces data, but in a way where we structure the data that we put into um, our designs, our, our advice, our reporting, so that we can get it back out. And we can mm. have insight. And from insight, we can give better advice. So. That's what I see as the as the big kind of idea here. It's not to take away the need for engineers or scientists or planners. It's actually the opposite. It's to give them better tools so that our clients and our communities get a better result. Because I think that's ultimately what we're called to do. That's the that's the great charismatic purpose of the profession. And uh, and I think this you know digital technology can definitely help that. Oh, that's the best example of explaining digital transformation I've ever heard. I um, I want to thank you for that. I hope your son is on the improve there. And is it all right if I use that story to help explain that? Because that, that, was, that was great. What do you find the hardest part of your role in, in getting the digital transformation message across? Do you find any resistance? Oh, Anthony, I, it's interesting. So I, I usually start off if I've got to pitch something to somebody on this 
topic, I always start off and I say something along the lines of, particularly if it's a big group, anyone in the room put up your hand if you think the world will be less digital in five years, right? And I've done this to group, you know, rooms of a thousand people and of course they all, no one puts their hand up. Everyone says, oh no, of course it's going to be more digital. And so everyone thinks we're headed this way, everyone. They just prefer it wasn't them that had to make the change. <laughs> and so... <laughs> So, so where you've got it, so the hardest thing about this is just getting started. I think we can all see a different future. And actually, I think we're kind of excited by that future, but it's the, can I afford to start this today? Because I have to relearn something. I have to, the first time I do it, it's going to feel clunky. I might not be as efficient. Um, I've got a high emotional attachment to these spreadsheets that I started building 15 years ago, and they've now got better and better, and you've no idea how cool they are. They've got macros and <laughs> drop-downs, you know, whatever, all that stuff. And you all are laughing because you know this. You've probably got some of your own. And and so to let that go, that high emotional involvement, in some ways people feel, you know, maybe feel like they've failed or there's something they're doing wrong. It's not, it's just not that. It's just the evolution. And But getting started is the hardest thing. I think, Anthony and Simon, where, where I see success on the other hand, is where you where we can characterise this as terms of a better product, because I, I think our profession deeply cares about the product. They deeply care about the infrastructure, the the project. They they care about that, and so if digital is a way to a better product, that's actually quite motivating for them. If digital is the way on its own to just a cheaper solution, they're less motivated by that. But here's the trick: most of the time, you can actually bring quality speed, price, and outcome together. Most of the time, these things address all of that. And so I, I honestly see a lot of winners uh, in, in the transformation, but it's hard getting people started. Probably the only other thought I have on that, and this is the real challenge for, for all of your listeners who are our age, in the, in the mid, you know, maybe in the middle of their career, we, we often end up, right, we're not really knowing what this is about, Maybe we're not as hands-on as we once were. We're managing teams and so forth. And we end up as the kind of blocker, the decision maker that might say, well, not on this project. Let's let so let's let let's let Simon's project try that first. We don't want to be the ones. And so I actually think we have a special obligation. That that sort of mid-level staff member has a special obligation to to actually enable and to encourage and let people have their head a bit, uh, which I know is hard to do, but but if if we don't then what we're doing is actually stifling the career of our younger professionals. And I think that's the real shame of it. Uh, someone looked after us and helped us on the way through. And it's our turn, I think, to make sure we're creating the environment to help help the younger staff as they're starting uh, and, and, and letting them have their head a bit. Perfect. Yeah, that is just hit the nail on the head again. Not trying to blow smoke by any means, but that really encompasses some of the things that I think about as well. It really blows my mind to think how for example, that the next generation of engineers is going to grow up working and say the one after that, you know, are they going to be, you know, or I think this was a 1990 movie, The Lawnmower Man, where he was, you know, sat in the in the digital environment and moving things around with his hands a little bit like the Matrix. Um, you know, it, it is turning into that that um, life imitating art. And Simon, I, I guess just to, to, to leave with a bit of encouragement on that topic, we may end up like the lawnmower man, and I do remember the movie, and that's probably aged, aged us all on the call. But, <laughs> but what I would say is that you don't get there in a day. You just got to start today with the little change today, and you've got to break it down into a lot of little things. 
that'll eventually add up. But what what I would you know, I think none of us can afford to do is not engage with it. It's to not embrace it too. Like look look willingly for the for the good, not just all the stuff that we don't like or, or that's change. And I think if you know, you, you see, I see teams all over the world where we've got people of all ages embracing things, and and some of the stuff they're doing is remarkable. And then you'll have a team that maybe feels a bit threatened or scared, or they haven't had the opportunity, whatever the case may be. And um, the difference is often just attitude. It's not much else. They're not any more skilled or any less skilled. It's just it's just embracing it and having a having a go. Thanks, Todd. I don't know if you've listened to our last couple of podcasts, but our last couple of guests have been passionate about climate change. And I'd like to touch on climate change from from your perspective and ask in your current role, how does climate change impact your decisions? And and I suppose for me and Simon, being a dad certainly does. But um, does being a dad influence how you think and, and how you uh, make your decisions? Yeah, uh, well, that's a, it's a great question, Anthony. Um, maybe I'll answer it a little bit in part by saying we, when I was the chief executive of Australia New Zealand business, uh, we really had to grapple then with what what role we would have, continue to have in the coal projects in the coal sector in Australia. Uh, Acom wasn't an enormous provider of services to the sector. There, you know, we didn't we we did some, but not not an enormous amount. But it was an area that our staff and the leadership of the business were concerned about because we felt like this while we we were concerned about climate change and we we wanted to play our part we couldn't can you know maybe walk both sides of the fence and so that was the first time i actually had to actively make a decision that influenced people's lives in terms of our work life about what we would do and what we wouldn't do and we changed the i guess the risk appetite of the firm around those projects as a result it was an interesting process for me personally because I had to learn a bit more about it. It was one thing to be able to say climate change and sort of be able to give a 30-second picture. It was another thing to be able to understand more deeply what did that what did that mean. So that's where it kind of started for me. I haven't been a like a campaigner on this for a long time or anything like that. I certainly wouldn't claim that. But it's continued since then, and and uh, I'm, I guess I'm pleased to say I play an active role in our in in our global strategies around that now as well which has been not just what we won't do, what are the projects we won't be involved with, what are the projects that we think are unhelpful for the world, but actually what what will we do positively? So what what skills and abilities does the world need uh, to make this transition, uh, including what investments as a company will make, not, not just investments uh, in social causes, which are important, but what investments in skills and abilities and, and business will we take? And um, that's been fascinating. And so I the why what you ask about being a being a dad or or whatever and i think there's probably two answers to the to the why for me the why is as a as a professional as a as an engineer i think i have an obligation to for everything we're doing to be a positive influence on the communities we serve and if you look at the things that we do they last a very very long time a long long time and so the decisions we're taking today on on not particularly in the design world on projects and how they're set out or where they're located and all of that they have implications for for a couple of generations and so i i think as particularly as designers we have a real strong obligation to make sure that we're we're taking that into account so for me that's that's the, the sort of professional uh, part of it and the the personal part is is just when you is probably two levels as well as the there's a being a parent and making sure that we've got you know a 
the life for our kids is a, is a good one and they're not trying to grapple with things that we we should have grappled with ourselves so that's part of it a responsibility on this on our generation in in these influential roles to do that and so i i care about that but i have for a very long time always derived a great deal of uh, kind of personal satisfaction out of the environment just being in the environment my my hobbies of camping and time at the beach and even the, the mountain bike that i mentioned at the start that's all outside and my greatest holidays have been outside and i I love that and I, and I would love to be able to play a small part in in preserving it as well and so there's probably a couple of layers to the to the answer there uh anthony but um it's been a really really fascinating not just to look at what we won't do but what we can do and i think that's probably where you can get people motivated and, and whole companies kind of motivated to uh, to chase after that as well yeah it can be scary thinking about the the future proposition for you know not just our own personal lives but the planet as a whole. It was only the other day I was looking at uh, the impact of of all the, the polar ice caps made uh, melting and and an 80 metre sea rise and um, it, you know, the Australian eastern seaboard looks vastly different. I can tell you, it's wow. um, very very scary. You know, all all of Morton Morton Bay and and Gold Coast is yeah all, all uh, largely disappeared. <laughs> yes, Todd. Yeah, I just always like to bring in the the father aspect because it does change the way we all think and we all want to leave a, the good things in life to our kids and their kids and it it really does um, resonate with me and it's certainly changed me and speaking to people like you and our other guests have really just cemented how important it is we we really need to to bring climate change to the forefront of everything we do and you know and as engineers we have a, a great responsibility to for the future generations, it's just um, something that we have to to respect and honour, really. Ah, well said. Well said. Another one that's probably touching a little bit on on your role, but did you choose manage, management and leadership, or did it choose you? I think I chose it, but the it maybe wasn't the most obvious thing. Um, I got to about. I'd, I'd finished a big project in Brisbane uh, called the Inner City Bypass, which I, I just loved doing. It was a great job, and I still get a kick out of driving through yeah. under the RNA tunnel fairly regularly. My kids, when they were much smaller, used to call it Dad's Tunnel, which was being very kind, considering <laughs> I had nothing to do with the tunnel at all, but I didn't ever correct them. Um, and uh, I came out of that and ended up uh, on on a, on a on a raft of other little, much smaller projects, obviously. And I got to manage my first sort of project as a project manager, uh, as a design manager of of a project, and I actually found I could I could do that pretty well. I was probably certainly maybe better at that. I had more aptitude for that than I did for some of the from some of the design work that I was doing. There were other people just much much better at that than me. I ended up running projects for a while, and I think that's probably where I I got a sense that actually these projects were were pretty easy if you got the people stuff right and you had to negotiate with people and people weren't robots and they the gantt chart was always wrong and you just needed to be able to work with people to to get things done and that didn't matter if they were inside acom or whether they were partners or whether they were sub consultants or whoever at the client didn't matter i kind of developed some skills there without necessarily trying uh simon but i was a bit to be honest i was probably a bit um i don't know i was a bit I didn't. I didn't look at the sort of corporate life and think, "Oh, I want to do that." I probably never. I've never thought that. 
but I just thought I could do people. I could do the people bit better than I could probably do the numbers bit. And after I'd been doing that for a while, that became a bit clearer. And then I then I started looking around at some of the teams that were being led, and I used to think, man, that boss is just killing those people. Why does he do that? Like that's so frustrating. You can just see how frustrated they are. And you know, we've probably all had a boss or two over our time that maybe frustrated us. And I used to see that and think, oh, if I ever get a chance to run one of these teams, I am never doing that. That just that's just awful. And so I kind of made a choice at some point through there, other probably fairly actively, if I recall, that I, I wouldn't mind a shot at doing this because it couldn't it couldn't be done much worse. You know, like there must be a way to make this a bit more enjoyable for our people. And so my initial motivations were all about our all about our people. And they remained that way for a while. But what what did change as well for me is I, I started to think about our our shareholders, right? So Acom's a publicly traded company. Now, all of us on the call and all of your listeners will be shareholders too. We've all got super funds. We've got investments as well, perhaps. And even if we're not at all interested in any of that and we can't stand the thought of a shareholder, if we've got super, we've got we're shareholders. And I used to, and no one looks at their share, their, you know, their super statement every year and think, oh, geez, I wish it didn't go up that much. They love the idea that it performs well because they're they're people. And I've got parents that are retirees that rely on income from their investments as you know, younger people, and they're just people. And so I started to see our our shareholders as people too. And so in my in my mind, I, I developed a bit of a model in in my head. That kind of led that I've kind of still used to this day. Uh, that it's you know our, our businesses, most businesses I think are probably held up on a three-legged stool. We've got our our people, our clients, and and our and our shareholders, our owners, whoever owns the business, whether they're internal or external, doesn't really matter. And uh, my my job has always been to be like a imagine like a spirit level that you're stuck on top of a flat surface. It's to try and balance that between those sometimes competing objectives of the groups. So I know our, cli- our, our clients always want a bit extra for free. And maybe that's okay sometimes. But actually, if if that's at the expense of of our people, because we have to flog them and work all weekend and overnight, you know, all the time grinding stuff out, well, that's not very fair. That doesn't feel like a great deal for them. That's not a great sort of situation. Or if it's at the expense of our shareholders that we're somehow paying for our clients' uh, indecisions or problems, well, that's not great either. And 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 so it goes on. So you know that balance of of the the groups, those people groups, became the this great little kind of mental model in my head that I I kind of use to this day about what's important. So it it didn't I choose I chose it Simon to answer your question, but it wasn't an immediate thought of geez I really think I should take a life in the corporate world. That wasn't that was far from my mind, and that's kind of evolved uh, over over time. Just hearing you talk made me reflect of when we went to uni together. To me, what my takeaways were, you were always a people person. You had something very different to the rest of our group, the way you communicated. The way you worked together in teams was was really something special. And, and it does not surprise me where you've ended up in, in a corporate, in a, in a leadership role, because you, you, you had something. Did you know you had something then? You were a little bit different in, in the engineering class? Well, I just I knew I needed you guys because I couldn't do the maths like you guys could do the maths. So I just say, so, so let's be fair. There's different skills, right? And I maybe I, maybe I could do some of this stuff differently, but I didn't. I definitely didn't see myself as different in in that respect. Um, I, I think that that only. I think we all kind of uh, 
get as we get up mature a bit and get a bit older, recognize the things we can do a little better than maybe our peers. And I think that's a great thing. I, I don't think that's a an arrogant thing. I think that's a really actually I think it's an important thing for teamwork to know I can this is the bit I can do. And if you can humbly serve your your colleagues and friends by by doing that well, then that's a great contribution. Uh, but at the same time, recognizing where others can contribute and you can't. And I and so that that's kind of how I, I see it. Uh, I actually am a fairly simple fellow, and I think that's probably helped in some of the communication because ultimately I I needed to be simple for me. <laughs> and so I, I've never kind of got beyond uh, just trying to always simplify the message. So I, I don't know, Anthony. Anthony, it's a work it's a work in progress. I've always thought about the uh, the other triumvirate in in terms of your three legged stool analogy as far as uh, times co cost and scope and yeah no that's a that's a really that's a it's an eye opening way to think about it and and 100% I mean it it always comes back to the idea that we are relational individuals and I guess bigger bigger masses but but it's all about the relationships that we share and you know you you're 100% spot on again in terms of it's about solving the people issues, you know, the the technical issues, individual A or individual B can work them out, you know, within within defined parameters. But solving that those people problems are, are really where where you know those soft skills is is where everything lies in terms of things being successful. So it's yeah, good good reflection and uh, probably leads me in next into my next point because I think it's fantastic advice. But um, do you mentor and, and what other advice would you give younger professionals in helping them find their path? Yeah, Simon, I do mentor and I have a mentor. So I think that's the first thing I'd say is uh, there's a chance we're all learning. We're always learning. So I think I'd encourage you to you know, seek seek someone out. You can bounce your, your ideas off. And I've got a a couple of uh, a couple of friends that I regularly would chat to, Not not on any on any kind of fixed basis, but on a, you know, maybe, I don't know, five or six times a year, we'd catch up and have a chat about things. And uh, they've both been further down this track than me. And so that's really helpful because they often can give you a very, you know, they see things differently. They have a, um, they're both a bit older than me as well. So they have a perspective and a, a wisdom that I'm, uh, we're all still gathering, I suppose. Uh, and yes, I do mentor because I think that's uh, really fun, actually. Uh, I, um, I'm, I have a I have a reverse mentor inside the business, which is fun. It's a it's a younger professional. He's he's in the US. His name's David. He's a great guy, and uh, I get to see the world through his eyes, which is just fascinating. And um, uh, that thought encourage that. I mean, you go from thinking you're the young guy to suddenly you're just not the young guy anymore. And so it's great <laughs> to be able to kind of see that. So I I do that, and uh, I also have people I mentor in in the business and and a couple outside as well and not again not in any formal way but people feel like they can that they can ring me and and uh, and have a conversation about things uh, I, I think it's great to be able to do that and I, I learn as much as I you know they do I suspect in those interactions it's always it's always fascinating but we need each other that's the thing we can't can't do it on your own you don't need to but yeah mentoring is good fun yes being a mentor and a mentee you get wisdom both ways can I ask you, with your younger mentees that you deal with, do they often pick your brains about how to become more strategic or how to introduce strategy into their work? It's something that I'm pretty keen on because I don't think I'm overly strong in, in strategy, so I'm also trying to, to learn from you. So what, what have you got to share on this? Keep it simple. <laughs> well, um, so the, to answer the first part of your question, the, the, 
sometimes they do. Yeah, sometimes they want to do that. Sometimes they just want to get a pay rise uh, too. That's part <laughs> of it. Um, there's all sorts of motivations they have, but but sometimes it's all about that. They, I think some. I think our young people, when they talk to me, are they, you know, they really have a maybe a sense they want to get an insight. What is this really like? Because it seems mysterious, you know. A, chief strategy officer what's that seems mysterious that could be cool or it might be a disaster they don't know so that so a lot of it's just trying to get an insight to 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 how to apply it in your work i think it's interesting um there's probably more written about strategy than just about anything else if you get on the harvard business review site and there's there'd be twenty five thousand articles at least so that there's no shortage of advice on this i guess my my favorite current bit of advice uh, or quote at least is from I think I'm going to attribute this correctly. I think it was Bezos uh, from Amazon who said, everyone knows what should be done, but actually doing it, that's an entirely other thing. And it's kind of like that with whether it's saving money for your retirement or getting fit or all that stuff. Uh, and so so I guess my my tip on on strategy of two two things, one is to echo Bezos. It's, uh, it's one thing to have a strategy. It's another thing to actually deliver on it. And I think that's much harder and and less sexy. Coming up with the idea, that's fun, but actually coming up with a plan, that's that's more difficult. Um, or executing on it. But the other thing is that it's I don't I don't know as I get older that there's good or bad strategy so much as there's just the strategy for the situation. And and you have to make a choice and then be good enough to execute on it. And so that that would be my advice to anyone who's looking to be a bit more strategic in their work is make a choice. Review it regularly. Don't be afraid to change, but actually execute on it. Uh, that that it's. I think it's not that complicated. But doing it's the hard thing. Great advice. Simon and I, uh, what you'd probably call coalface type engineers, we are still in the technical space. And as people like that, we get a lot of satisfaction on seeing our designs come into into reality during construction. Where do you get your satisfaction from with your work? Yeah, that's a that's a that's a really good question. Um, so I'd probably answer I answer that two ways. I, I think I still care that, about those projects that you're delivering. I, I care. I still care about that. I, I haven't stopped caring about that. And I think any the time that I do is probably the time to stop doing this job, because I think if you can't be in love with the product, the thing the business is producing. And I think that's probably time to let someone else have a go because there's so much to like about what we do. You know, the, the industry and and the businesses that we're all in, they have they have a charismatic kind of purpose in delivering for our communities, and I think that's pretty easy to get excited about. So that still gets me excited. It's still cool to drive through a big tunnel or to catch go into a railway station that we've designed or whatever it might be. Uh, Anthony, I I know you're a water engineer. And this is a water flavored podcast. I don't get as excited, I must admit, about wastewater treatment as some. <laughs> Sorry to, I, I'm just. It's. I know it is. I know. I know it matters. I deeply know it matters. I I'm thankful for it, but I find it less uh, less. It doesn't get me uh, sort of uh, get my heart racing like some of the other things we do. Um, but but in my day to day work, the thing that does probably two things get me really. Uh, I guess excited, or, or you get really great satisfaction. The, the first is teamwork. So when people come together and sort something out, whatever it is, big or small, and there's this sense of esprit de corps, and they and it's successful, right? And you own it at the end. That to me is just 
that's fantastic. Like that's a great feeling, particularly if you're the leader of the team and you've been able to lead in a way where you haven't actually had to be up front and banging the drum too much and you've been able to kind of engage people in it and and and, and everyone's got to come out of it learning something you know better for the experience. So, so that's that's the first thing. And in the in the strategy stuff, what's been great is seeing things get executed on. And and I, I've only been in this role a couple of years, and Acom's a very big company. So some of the things we've started, I wouldn't say are fully kind of embedded in the across fifty thousand people. It's just that it, things don't happen quite that quickly. Un, you know, unfortunately, it'd be lovely if they could just snap your fingers and it all happened. But seeing that, but, but there are some things that have just caught fire, and you think, ah, oh, that's so that is so exciting to see that. Mm. And so I think they're the two the two things that really get me up and uh, and and are, are really exciting. But again, I come back to the work that you're doing and that people like you all over our industry are doing. That's the reason we exist. And so I think you can never sort of stray too far from that. Thanks, Todd. Great answer. Most rewarding, I suppose, you know, and I probably haven't had that that breadth or, or, or quite this, the similar kind of scope of leadership. But, you know, the, the leadership that I have been exposed to, it's it's very much that wonderful outcome is is when it's a uh, I guess an experience of empowerment, and you know the whole team has 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 gone forward and and grown and and learnt and and upskilled, and you know you've come out the other side with a really successful outcome. Um, and like you say, you haven't had to feel like you've been that that uh, overlord banging the drum and and screaming about deadlines and that type of thing. I mean, I, I guess there's a little bit of that that happens, but yeah, empowerment for me very much. Uh, it's uh, if you can bring that out as a leader, that's a that's a very strong point. Um, about roles and um, titles, that type of thing. What do you tell your kids you do? Is there um, any future engineers coming through in the Batley household? The kids have uh, got a pretty good idea of what I do because I, I do a lot of work at night, um, a lot at <laughs> night, and not, not just a bit of casual reading or whatever. I'm actually on the phone like just like I am now to you guys at night, and so they hear one half of every conversation, um, and there there are, you know, I've got two 14 and a 16 year old, so they're um they're pretty sort of savvy and they they've kind of listened into stuff and they've got to know the people a bit who I'm talking with. My my eight year old doesn't doesn't know doesn't care, but the the other two have a pretty good idea of of what I do. I don't really tell them I do much actually. They they reckon all I do is talk to people. There's some there is some truth as well. There is some truth to that. Uh, and are there any future engineers in the Batley household? Um, it's a bit early to tell. I I don't know. I've got a a son who sort of really enjoys some of his sciences, uh, biology and a bit of chemistry. But biology seems to be his current favourite thing, and and history and English. And so he he I'm not sure what he's going to do yet. He's not he's not sure either. But I'm sure he'll figure we'll figure something out with him over the course of the next eighteen months. At least get him get him off to the next step after school. I've got a daughter who. Uh, the, the idea of being an engineer, she just rolls her eyes at me and uh, that <laughs> seems very far from her her ideal at the moment. But uh, you never know, she's only 14, she could change her mind. And and Max, our youngest, I think he's going to be an artist. He's uh, he's mad keen on drawing. He just draws constantly uh, to the point where we we buy a ream of paper from, from Woolies every maybe three weeks and he gets through an entire ream just with sketches and drawings. So, so I think he's going to be an artist and we're just hoping it's – that he can be famous in his own lifetime, uh, rather, because many artists aren't. Uh, yeah. So no, I don't. I don't know if there's any engineers. Uh, I've got a. I've got a couple of uh, uh, relatives that that are. I've got a nephew that's uh, just about to finish uh, uni at 
at um, at University of Queensland actually, and and start next year in the profession, which is uh, which is great. And uh, I uh, have a a few uh, people in my neighbourhood actually. I've talked with their kids who've decided to do engineering, and uh, I think you know I'd encourage all your listeners if you if you know a young person uh, and you want to give the you know, give give a different face to the profession, go in and talk about creative problem solving. Don't talk about maths and stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, and and show them what we do. It's uh, it's uh, it can be can be a great contribution. And I know as a as a young person myself, I I was probably influenced by a, a family friend who was a civil engineer, and he just made it sound like a really cool thing to do. Uh, and I think that probably had a bit to do with uh, starting out uh, straight out of high school. Todd, I was in a workshop yesterday, and the way the workshop started was, okay, everyone, what did you want to be when you're in primary school? Huh. Todd, did you just answer that one for us? I was probably going to be batting number three for Australia. Hang on a sec. Just just time out a bit. That's exactly what I said. That's Is that right? Well, we would have been up it. against each other. I might have been number four. You could have had the three spot. That's okay. fine. That's that's really uncanny. Sorry about that. That must have been uh, whatever you I'd got over you. it. I'd got over it by the time I hit high school. I was pretty sure it wasn't going to happen, I think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, Mr. Ponting made sure of that. <laughs> yeah, that's right. One of the, the last conversations we had was about, you know, diversity and engineering and um, very much uh, it's a very uh, inspiring element of your background that you're involved um, in that space. You know, you were a male champion of change. Can you tell us about this initiative and, and what that means? Yeah, so the male champions of change or champions of change as it's, as it's known now, uh, sort of movement, if you like, uh, was an Australian invention that sought to enlist the help of chief executives and all very senior officers in companies and government departments who could set a tone to create a more diverse Australia over time. And it came, I think the the origins of it came from a, a McKinsey partner who was an Australian, who talked about this big idea that he and some of his friends and colleagues would have about you know, he's kind of one of the things that he thought about contributing to the world that, that that he could play a small part in was to ensure that we had you know, more women working, women in the workforce, empowered in the workforce at all levels in all careers. And so, at least as as best I understand it, he he kind of started the very first male champions of change group. And I've met him, and he was a fascinating, just a fascinating guy. So, uh, my role in it was quite simple as a as a as the chief executive, the former chief executive of our Australian New Zealand business, um, I, I joined that group and I took over from Lara, who was the, my predecessor, and Richard, who's the fellow that took over after me, he's he's joined that board and I've come off. And so that group seeks to, it, so it works across the all of the Consult Australia members. So it's uh, it's with, you sit down with the CEOs of all of your sort of major competitors and seek to do things as an industry because you can't really achieve much, even the big firms working on their own. And we were focused on you know, increasing the number of students in high schools being exposed to, to, to engineering. In fact, there was a fair bit of research to suggest that even in primary schools, that uh, particularly young girls were being influenced one way or the other about things like maths and science, making sure that it, at high schools that, you know, the the great sort of maths and science students at maths and sciences were being encouraged and that engineering was getting a good look in at uh you know people were wanting to take that that course and 
people graduating with great grades from high school, men or women, have a lot of options, uh, whether they want to go into finance or they want to go into banking or they want to go into a million other things, and engineering was one of them. So that was part of it. That was a small part of what we did. But then what we what we did that was really where the rubber hits the road is that we shared fairly openly in all of the amongst the firms the initiatives we had in place to improve uh, gender representation and and in really importantly the experience of women in the workplace and so we would talk actively about what's WSP doing what's you know what's what's Oricon doing what's Acom doing and we would share best practice and look to apply those things uh, so as an example equal pay audits happened in fact I think all of the firms would be are doing that and so what that means is we look at a people at the same level with the same experience in an organization male and female and just make sure that if they you know that they were being paid right that there was there wasn't a, a gender pay gap on a like-for-like -like basis so it wasn't just a, a I guess a, a feel good or a um a, a statement around um uh, trying to achieve something that was you know across all of society we were also trying to make our our firms and not just our firms but the industry that we we had influence over we were trying to make it a pocket of excellence and we really wanted no no um you know really no women to we wanted more women to come into the profession but we wanted them to stay in the profession as well and uh, that, that that was really a, i guess how i'd summarize it in, in a in a short way uh, there were some interesting things that came out of that that i think all of the firms have adopted as well things like um parental leave where we're encouraging more dads young dads to take to take leave uh, i think many of the firms introduced that as well so th th there was a, you know I, I used to say if it was if it was good for women it was going to be good for all of us you know most of these most of the the great initiatives actually had broad applicability uh, to improve the culture of of our firms and and indeed hopefully the industry all great work this it's very important we have more more women to round us off it's you just can't be male dominated it's just it's just you don't get good teamwork you don't get good diversity of thought it's just so important and i'm glad there's been a real real change in the industry it, uh, i'm hoping the what is it simon one in six or 16 percent representation 16. somewhere in that, that yeah range. i hope that um hope that's on the increase so now good work and and guys, the number one thing we can do, right, is while while that intake into universities is not is not 50-50 and that seems a, a way off, what we can do is make sure, absolutely make sure that the experience of women in our industry is fantastic. So they have no reason to leave. Many of us have stayed for ages because it's such a great industry to work in. There's so much productive, enjoyable, great work, you know, as we've talked about, stuff that's still it's still exciting. 25 years on and so the the reason people leave when you look at it is culture it's it's if the culture's poor or there's harassment in any form that's so that's what we can do we can and we can make sure that wherever we are we don't have that so that the people that you so that the women you do have in your in your workplace are actually feeling like it's a great place to work and if we can do that we can make sure we keep the people in the industry in the industry we, we don't have too many engineers there's not too many we have a skills shortage so we can't afford to just you know, draw on 16% of women uh, in the intake. We have, we need more. That's, mm. that's for sure. Todd, how do you unwind? Uh, what what a, are your passions? It's a great question. Um, I, I have a, 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 I mentioned the mountain bike. 
I, uh, I ride a mountain bike. I have done for about 30 years, actually, uh, since since uni. And uh, I, I try and get out uh, once a week on that with some some mates of mine. We've Most of us have ridden together for maybe 15 years or so. Uh, we used to be fit. We're now <laughs> less fit. We're less fit, but the conversations over coffee have got probably more interesting. And so that's uh, that's both a, a, a fantastic connection for me with these other other guys who I, I really enjoy spending time with but it's also great great fitness and it frees my mind and so for me uh i can feel when i'm not uh, i'm not at my best at work or at home is when i haven't haven't been out on the bike uh, mm-hmm. i would love to do it a bit more but I, I just honestly don't can't can't really find the time i've also got a fair bit of enjoyment out of um i, I volunteer at the the local cricket cricket club through the cricket season my eldest plays cricket and um i'm a i'm the, the scorer uh, and 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 statistician for the team. That's that's great fun. I actually really enjoy that. I can sit there and watch cricket all day. I got it. The, probably the thing that gives me the most satisfaction, particularly in the summer, is if you've, after all those years of not being able to look at a lawnmower, is it's to mow the lawn and to look back on the grass at home and think, I got all that done. It's all done. It's probably one of the only jobs I ever feel like I get 100% finished in any given week. So, uh, so I find that I actually find that quite therapeutic. Uh, if I can jump in the pool afterwards, that's even better. Do um do you still use a scorebook or is it is it uh, getting automated and digitised no. these days? <laughs> I, you should see the Cricket Australia app is absolutely fantastic. So every oh, wow. kid's got your score on a, on an iPad app. All of the stats from the entire game get sucked into a little portal that each player has. So everyone knows their the score. You have, everyone follows along live on their phones. Oh, the wow. kids know their average. They know every score, every catch they've ever taken. They can go back through ten years of data. Steve Smith's <laughs> Steve Smith's on the app. You can see his stuff. So um, no, it's it's fantastic actually. Uh, it it was a bit rough when they introduced it the first time. I did have one one game where it just completely melted down, and I didn't have a backup paper. And we were about thirty overs into a fifty over game, and I I don't know what happened. I I just I don't know. It was a disaster, and I think we just declared <laughs> declared one team the winner. But um, but thankfully, it's actually pretty robust now. Uh, so oh, yes, yeah, so wow. it's a, it's fully digital and it's great. Well, that's amazing. I I, I hung up my um, cricket gear, or not? I put away my cricket gear probably around the time that I had my daughter, so I haven't uh, experienced the the advent of the last kind of ten ten plus years in in that space. So that's that's pretty cool. Okay, Todd, uh, you've negotiated the serious questions pretty well. Let's see how you go with our fabulous five questions, which are the, I suppose, not so serious questions. It sounds more intimidating. These sound more, the fab- <laughs> when you call something a fabulous five, it sounds like it. <laughs> anyway, let's hit, hit me with it. All right, let's go. I'll kick it off. So what has been the greatest piece of advice received and who told you? My dad said to me, when you're faced with a decision you can't get, you're probably not going to get 10 out of 10, but you're but the only way to get zero out of 10 is to not make the decision at all. So just make the decision and get on with it. Mm. And uh, there comes a, a time in every kind of you know, set of complex scenarios you're faced with that you just have to make a call and move on and then adjust when you get it. If it's wrong, it admits you got it wrong or it's not quite right and, and adjust. So that was his advice. It's uh, proved I probably think about it most days, actually. Yeah. I think that reminds me of, uh, yeah, Michael Jordan, you miss 100% of the shots you don't take. There you go. That's, that's right. That's a good one. All right. Who would you like to share a dinner with and why? Well, hmm, that's a tricky one. I think uh, dinner with Melissa is always good, so I'd probably say that. But if you're looking for a more famous person that might be <laughs> that might be more recognisable, 
I reckon I'd stick with the cricket team. I'd go for dinner. I'd have a maybe a beer with Pat Cummins would be pretty interesting because I reckon he seems like the kind of modern Australian cricketer that's going to usher cricket into a new era, perhaps in this country. And I'm a bit of a cricket fan, so I think uh, a beer with Pat would probably dinner with Melissa and then a beer with Pat. How does that sound? <laughs> he is. He, he is very much. Uh, I suppose. Perhaps not, not 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 cut from the same cloth as um, you know the lineage behind him. Yeah, he he definitely seems as a bit of a, a bit of a change or or a new new model. Uh, yeah, rev rev two of the Australian cricketer. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Uh, question three: What is your greatest non-work related achievement? Oh, non-work. You can't say your kids either. You can't say you have your kids. <laughs> well, no, that well, that's I, unfair, Anthony. Yeah, no, we're gonna. We, that was that's, we, that's, that's been a highlight. That's a highlight. That's a given. It's a given, um, I suppose. Yeah. Work right. Um, I uh, I think it's interesting. It probably you know, I think about uh, a project, a house we renovated. Melissa and I renovated together that we now we don't live in anymore. We moved three years ago, but um, actually, kind of getting that that finished after it was a labour of love. That was yeah. a that was a that was a great achievement. Good fun. Everyone should probably do it once and then probably agree never to do it again because it was just so much work. But uh, we lived under um, Melissa's sister's stairs at her place with two kids at that stage for um, for nine months. Anyway, it was just uh, tried to keep hold down a job. It was uh, it was chaos, but it uh, felt great when we finished. <laughs> All right. Here's here's an easy one um, for the global or, or globe trotter is um, favorite place to travel and why? Oh, so many great places. Um, so I'll probably stay close to home and say Noosa. So I've seen a fair bit of the world, been fortunate to do that. But I can tell you there's just something about walking off Hastings Street with no shoes onto the sand and diving into the Laguna Bay that's just special. That's That'll never get old. And that's, our, that's the Batley family kind of holiday over Christmas is a couple of weeks a year up, up at Noosa. And... Um, I look forward to it every year. It never gets old. Ice cream, no shoes, hot weather, cricket on the TV. There's something about that whole experience. But if you wanted an overseas exotic spot, I think uh, the coolest thing I think I've ever seen was the Cinque Terre in, in Italy. I, the, the little five villages there on the coastline. Uh, that was just uh, north of there. Uh, just amazing. Just amazing. And uh, actually Mount Cook in New Zealand? Can I have three? That's oh, a fan- <laughs> that's a fantastic no spot. I, that, I, that's some of my best camping I've ever done. In my, just such a special spot. So now there's same. Let's get. We could have a travel version of the podcast, guys. Oh, there's totally. so many, and you could share your favourites as well. <laughs> yes. Oh uh, yes. All, All right. right. It's the, a hard one to pin down. Okay. The final question: What is your go-to drink, red, white, or other? Well, I. Probably all three, um, depending on the time of the day. So I'm, I'm a bit of a coffee fan, uh, AD. So I I do care deeply about the coffee that's brewed here at the at the Batley House, and uh, have spent um, a fair you know twenty odd years perfecting that. So coffee is probably my first love. But a a Riesling from the Clare Valley, I love, dry and crisp, and um, most of the reds from the Barossa I love. And if you finish mowing the lawn just before you dive in the pool, a cool beer is not bad either. So I'm I'm um I'm open I'm open to all all times of the day and night. I'm uh, open open to all options. And I'll, I'll see if I can get a, a bottle of red, a Demantia State Special for you, Todd. <laughs> That'd be <laughs> great. Fabulous. 
you've done a great job with the fabulous five questions. Simon, that, that's it. That's all we've got for Todd. Yeah, that, that ends our interview with Mr. Todd Batley. Great chat, Todd. Really appreciate your time. Happy to do it um, another time, perhaps down the road. I think, um, yeah, there's a lot of uh, really interesting content in that and uh, hopefully our listeners enjoy. Thanks very much for having me, guys. I really enjoyed it. It's been great fun. (laughs) Yes, and just to add on, look, thanks very much. It's been great reconnecting after so long. Thank you so much for for your time. I know you're a busy man, so really appreciate that. Thanks, guys. Good luck. Thanks, everyone. That was the, the good drop with Todd Batley. Hopefully we can catch you next time. Thanks again, everyone. See you next time.